All right, we're ready for Jeremiah chapter 7 to 9. Jeremiah chapter 7 through 9. Let's back up and get a bird's eye view of the uh, overview of the book. Uh, we borrow our outline from Wearsby that we've been following. Two, our three major sections, the national section, the messages to Judah, the personal section, Jeremiah's suffering, and then the international section, the message to the nations. Every prophet, almost every prophet, has a nations section we talk about. We'll get to that a little bit later in chapter 46. Uh, we're in this section concerning the condemnation, and then there's the captivity and the restoration, and he talks about the, the nation generally through chapter 20, and then he'll talk about the leaders specifically in 21 to 24, at least as per uh, this outline. In Jeremiah chapters 1 through 3, kind of a review of what we've seen thus far, we had the prophet's call, and we had the Lord's indictment, uh, and then Thirdly, we saw in beginning in chapter 3, the Lord's appeal for repentance and a promise of destruction for those who reject. And that carries us through chapter 6 and verse 30. And that's where we stopped last time, or you stopped last time uh, in the study. The next section deals with the false religion and its deception, chapters 7 through 10. And here's something you're looking for on your handout. And by the way, on the handout, I realize that uh, one of the questions is asked twice, and that was um, by mistake. Uh, I copied that box and intended to put another question there, and I don't even remember what I was going to put there. But anyway, I realized that. But anyway, um, one of the things you're looking for is the temple message, and that is this message from chapter 7 through 10, from 7-1 through 10 in verse 25. Those chapters, 7, 8, 9, and 10, is this temple message. More about that message here in just a moment. But let's get a summary, and you're looking for this in your handout, of the three chapters. This is not our chapter titles as such. I'm uh, following, actually, uh, not Wiersbe's outline when I come to uh, breaking down each chapter. Uh, but another, I think, uh, much of that's worded from Harkrider, I think. But anyway, this summarizes what these three chapters are about. Chapter 7 primarily focuses on their hypocrisy uh, and various forms of their hypocrisy. Chapter 8 focuses on the doom because of that hypocrisy, because of their sin. And then chapter 9 talks about their punishment being just. Now, is there other things, or are there other things in chapter 7 besides hypocrisy? Well, certainly so. Same thing with these other two chapters. But if you wanted to summarize chapter 7, well, what's it about? It's about their hypocrisy. What's chapter 8 about? Well, it's really about doom coming because of their sin. Chapter 9, punishment is just. Uh, because they've been warned, they've rejected God, and consequently, their punishment is just, and God's going to be vindicated uh, in that. So now let's talk about chapter 7. There is this temple message uh, that several commentators talk about. But notice at verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this word. And so here was his sermon that is going to be delivered at the temple. So you go to the gate of the temple and you deliver this message. And this, this sermon goes through chapter 10 and verse 25. And we'll finish that next time. So we're going to look at the bulk of the sermon, basically. And so we call this the temple message. We're not through with it tonight, but I'm just trying to give you a perspective. And you might make a marginal note for a future study that this goes from chapter uh, 7, 8, 9, and on into chapter 10. So what, what's dealt with in this 
this section, this sermon. Well, false religion and its deception. And that gets to their hypocrisy and their sin. Now, we're going to look at three things tonight. Uh, and we've already talked about hypocrisy and, and doom coming and, and punishment uh, is just. But as Herkrider words that in his work, he calls it simply trusting in the temple and offering prayers and sacrifices are all in vain unless joined by sincere obedience. In other words, they're, they're offering sacrifices, they're coming to the temple, they're offering prayers, but there's not obedience. That's what we call hypocrisy. And so he describes their hypocrisy in chapter 7. Well, then in chapter 8, apostasy uh, from God's way results in punishment. Doom is coming because of sin, as we summarized a moment ago. And then chapter 9, uh, religion guided by uh, imagination of man's heart is indeed a corrupt uh, religion. So let's look at chapter 7 now. Let's focus on chapter 7. And uh, I'll try to uh, call attention to some of the uh, questions that, are, uh, that we've handed out as well as the handout uh, as we go along. So here's what happens in chapter 7. We're talking about trusting in the temple and offering prayers and sacrifices are useless unless there's obedience. First of all, let's look at verses 1 to 15. Do not trust in lying words. And he talks about presumptuous worship cannot save. So let's get verses 1 to 15. Uh, verse 1 says they call him to the temple and you go to the temple and you start preaching this message. And here was the message, verse 2 beginning. Amend your ways and your doings and I will cause you to dwell in this place. In other words, if you change, then you will dwell in this place. Thinking, I think, uh, promising uh, a remnant that would come. That if you make a change, there you will be allowed to come back in, into the land. And the punishment, uh, or at least stay in the land. Now look, notice verse 4. Now this is quite interesting. Do not trust in lying words, saying, Temp the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. So what's going on here? Well, you're looking for this in your handout. And uh, that is, in what way were they trusting in the temple? Well, let's jump ahead of ourselves to verse 14. He talks about the, the house, which is called by my name, in which you trust. They had confidence in the temple. Perhaps uh, some suggest that because the temple is with them and they, the temple is still standing, everything's okay. Everything's okay because the temple is still standing. And some suggest that maybe their thought was God wouldn't allow anyone to destroy his holy temple. And so as long as we've got this temple, then everything's okay. No matter how we live, God's not going to allow another nation to come and destroy this temple. Uh, perhaps that's the thought process. Uh, it may be as much this concept of that uh, because we have the temple, we're safe, and they're putting their confidence, we can go to the temple, and because we have the temple and we go to the temple to worship, everything's okay. Uh, let me give you a parallel to that uh, that may get us to better understand what's going on with them. We, we have the same kind of concept with reference to being a member of the church. Uh, we, we learn enough principle of truth that we know the church of Christ is that which is in harmony with the scriptures. And so we boast, I'm a member of the church of Christ. I'm a member of the church of Christ. I may not live faithful. I may not be as godly as I ought to be. I may not go to church all the time. I may say things, words I shouldn't say, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm a member of the church of Christ. And so it's like church of Christ, church of Christ, church of Christ are these. And so I'm safe. Well, you're not living, but I'm a member of the church of Christ though, you see. And therefore, everything's okay. And so that's the concept. That's the, the idea uh, that's going on here. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Or maybe baptism. I've been baptized, so everything's okay. So they're putting their confidence and their trust 
uh, somewhat in the temple. But that's not the only thing that they do, and we'll see that a little bit later on. But it comes back to this thought at verse 5. If you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings and thoroughly execute judgment between man and neighbor. And here's what that means you're going to be doing. Look at verse 6. You're not going to oppress the stranger and the fatherless. You're not going to shed blood. You're not going to walk after other gods. They're idolatry, which is dealt with specifically throughout these three chapters. And uh, notice verse, verse 8. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Now, what were the lying words? Well, the lying words were the prophets that said, peace, peace. We'll see that in chapter 8 when there is no peace. That's the lying words. The lying words also involved anyone who gave, gave heedance to this concept, the temple is still standing, and as long as the temple is here, God's not going to allow it to be destroyed, and every, so this nation is not going to suffer the punishment that Isaiah said would happen and that Jeremiah said would happen. That's not ever going to happen. And it may also include some things that are implied in verse 10, that they can come and they can worship and yet go about living however they want and everything's okay. Their sin's taken care of. But they're trusting in lying words, and they do not profit. Now notice at verse 9, let's continue through verse 15, and we'll stop and summarize. That uh, will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear, swear falsely and walk after the other gods whom you do not know, and then come, in other words, you're going to live a life of sin, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and then you say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Now that's quite fascinating in that they think they can sin and come and then be justified and then go sin again. Does that fit us in any way? That, that I, can, I can go sin and then I come to church and I'm justified from that sin and then I'm free to go sin again. And then I come back to church and I'm justified from my sin and then I go out and sin again. And then I come back and so you go through the cycle. That seems to be what they're doing. You come to the temple and offer some form of worship and think you're justified. And then you just go back to a life of sin again. That's how corrupt they have become. Now beginning at verse 11. Uh, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves? Jesus, it doesn't, it's not a direct quote, but it's, he alludes to that principle when he, he found the money changers. In other words, they've corrupted and abused the temple is what they're doing. You're abusing the temple and the use of the temple. And that's the use Jesus made of that phrase uh, in Matthew chapter 21. And notice he said, but behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. In other words, your hypocrisy, I see through. I see through your hypocrisy. You come, to, you come to worship, you come to the temple, you offer your temple sacrifices, and yet you go back to a life of sin. I see through that. I know through that, and I, 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 I'm seeing better. Now, verse 12, you're looking for this in your handout. We're still in verses 1 to 15. At verse 12, he mentions Shiloh. And he says, go now to my place which is in Shiloh, uh, where I set my name at first, and see what I did because of the wickedness of the people. What's the point about Shiloh? Well, Shiloh, 1 Samuel 1 and verse 3, was the place where God set up the tabernacle in Canaan, was where it was first set up. Well, the Philistines later come and uh, they defeated Israel and, and took the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, 1 Samuel chapter 4, and then later because of the sin of the people, Shiloh basically was destroyed. So that gives me some credence to the interpretation back earlier that they think maybe if the temple is here and we've got the temple, nothing's going to happen. And so nothing is going to happen to this temple. God allowed the tabernacle and Shiloh to be destroyed, didn't he? And so he's saying, in essence, go look at Shiloh and see what happened to Shiloh. 
That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the uh, tabernacle was. And it ended up being destroyed because of the sin of the people. So what makes you think Jerusalem won't be destroyed? Go take a look at Shiloh and see what's going on over there. And you'll find out it was destroyed. Now, look at verse 13. He said, and now because you've done all these, I have spoken to you rising up early speaking, but you did not hear and I called and you did not answer. Now, there's a, the phrase here concerning the prophets. It's quite interesting. And that is, the prophets rose up early. Uh, you see, you have a question about that. In fact, you have two questions. You can answer either box of that if you, you wish. But verse 13, then later verse 25. So what's the significance of, a, of the prophets rising up early? I don't think it's so much that the prophets got up at 6 o'clock instead of waiting to 9 o'clock. I don't think that's the idea. As much as it's the idea of the urgency and the eagerness. Uh, if there is something real urgent for you to do tomorrow, you're going to rise up early to do that if it's real urgent. And if you're eager to do it, you're going to rise up early to do that. And so the prophets rose up early because of the eagerness with which that message was delivered and furthermore, the urgency of the message. I sent prophets to you, rising up early to come to you. But you didn't listen. I called through the prophets. You didn't answer. So you rejected me. And then look at all the sin that you've been committing. And uh, now then, uh, verse, verse 14 and 15 to finish that section. Therefore I will do to this house which is called by my name, in which you trust. You've got your trust and your confidence, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And he said, I'm going to do this, what I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out like I did, and I'm paraphrasing verse 15, your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom, which has already fallen at this point. So that gets us to 1 to 15 now. So don't trust in these lying words that, that gives you every kind of confidence. The temple's not going to be destroyed. Jerusalem's not going to be destroyed. And, and then you come and worship and then you go on uh, committing your sin. Now let's start at verse 16 now through 20. Prayer is not going to avail in Judah um, because of their idolatrous heart. So let's get 16 to 20 uh, here. And uh, therefore do not pray for this people. In other words, don't even offer intercessory prayer for them. Uh, reminds me of 1 John 5. There's a time you don't pray for your brother. It doesn't mean you don't pray for them to come to repentance, but don't pray for their forgiveness if, if they are committing a sin unto death. That is a sin where they're not repenting of that. You don't pray for them. You don't ask for their forgiveness. Not until they show some sign of repentance. So, so no need to pray for, for Judah, he says at verse 16. And for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do? Well, what are they doing? Well, verse 18, they gather wood. This is a picture of getting ready for a sacrifice. The children gather wood and, the, and they, the women knead their dough and make cakes to the queen of heaven. It's idolatry. And they pour out their drink offering. And in other words, they're worshiping idols. And they're worshiping even the stars we're going to see a little bit later on. Um, now, therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 20, my anger and my fury is poured out upon them. So no need to pray. Prayer is of no avail as long as you have this idolatrous heart. So don't pray for them while they're worshiping idols for their forgiveness because I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen to that, God said. All right, let's get 21 to 28. The sacrifices are futile unless there's wholehearted obedience. Now, this is practical stuff. Because the same thing is true of worship that, that we offer to God is worthless unless there's obedience. So now notice at verse 21, and you're watching, you're looking for this in your handout. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, add, to, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. What's his point? What he's saying, if I might paraphrase that, is 
that your sacrifices are nothing more than meat. They amount to nothing because you don't obey. He hasn't got to the lack of obedience. Well, he has already, but not in this section he hadn't. He'll get to that in a moment. But you don't obey. So your sacrifices are nothing but meat. So what you might as well do is just go ahead and eat the meat. Instead of sacrifice, just eat the meat. Don't, don't bring that sacrifice and waste the meat. You might as well eat it. That's like bringing your, your contribution, your, your monetary contribution, and you give it into the treasury while living a life of sin. You might as well spend it on something you'll enjoy. That's a waste of money. It's really a waste of money because you might as well just buy something that you'll enjoy because it's a waste of time and money if there's not obedience. And that's what God's saying about the meat. That's what you're looking for that in your handout. Um, now, verse 22, for I did not speak to your fathers or command them. Now, this is a little, uh, a little bit difficult, verse 22 and 23, but let's get the point. For I did not speak to them when I brought them out of the land concerning burnt offering and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice. Now, what's he saying? He's not saying I didn't, I didn't command sacrifices when I brought them out of Egypt, brought them to, to Sinai and gave them a law. He did give sacrifices there. But he didn't merely give, he didn't, what he's saying is, I didn't merely ask for sacrifice. What I asked for was obedience from the heart. That's what I asked for. That's what I asked for at Sinai. That's what I asked for in the law. That's what I asked for in the Ten Commandments. That's what I asked for in, in all the laws that God had given. And notice he said, obey the voice and I will be your God and you'll be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded that it may be well with you. Not a direct quote, but that's, that's got to be referring to Deuteronomy 6. Because repeatedly through Deuteronomy 6, there is the statement that it may be well with you. That if you do this and if you do that, then it will be well with you. And it was about obedience. Uh, teaching your children, teaching diligently to your children. Let the word be in your heart and then you teach it diligently to your children and it will be well with you. Deuteronomy 6. Well, they, they didn't do that. Uh, let's go on down through verse 28 now. Again, uh, yet you did not obey, verse 29, or incline your ear. But interesting phrase at verse 24, that you went backward and not forward. Make a good sermon. Are you going backwards or forwards? Do you know which direction you're going? Are you going backwards or forward? You went backwards instead of forward. In other words, you went back into sin rather than going forward uh, into righteousness. You went back to Egypt rather than going forward to Canaan. Which direction are you going? Again, verse 25 mentions the prophets were rising up early and sending them. Yet, yet, verse 26, you did not obey nor incline your ear, and you did worse than your fathers. Therefore, you shall speak all these words to them. Now, this is interesting. You're looking for this in your handout. You speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you, and you shall also call on them, and they will not answer you. Now, put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes. And you've been given a task, and God said, I want you to go preach to these people, and I want you to preach 40 to 50 years. And you're going to go preach, but they're not going to listen to you. And you're going to call to them, but they're not going to answer you. And you're going to, you're going to give a message to them, they're going to ignore you. And when his 50 years were over, Jeremiah could look around and count, and he didn't need two hands to count how many converts he had. You think about that. That's pretty sad. And so you're looking in your handout for what kind of success would Jeremiah have in teaching the people? And the answer is none. None. 
It's pretty sad. What good does it do to preach when they won't listen? And Ezekiel will give us some insight to that when we get to the book of Ezekiel that at least you have warned them and there's, there's been a prophet among them. They'll know there's been a prophet among them. And so I'm learning from that, which is a hard lesson to learn. You teach somebody when you know they won't listen. Give them the opportunity to reject it or to accept it. And that was what uh, he was to do. Now, verse 28, to finish that section. Uh, so you shall say to them, this nation does not obey the voice of the Lord, nor, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. And so sacrifices are just useless because there's no wholehearted obedience. Now, let's finish chapter 7 by looking at the fact that the Lord uh, rejected this generation because of their hypocrisy. And he said, cut off your hair. That's a, a sign of, of great distress. Uh, if you could be a news crew traveling along with Jeremiah and capture pictures of him as he's dealing with this, you're going to be seeing various signs that he was, he was deeply involved in his message and with the people. Uh, he's called the weeping prophet, as we've already noted. Um, but cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights. Uh, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of, uh, uh, generation of his wrath. And look at verse 30. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight. Well, what have they done? Well, they set up their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to pollute it. And they set up high places in the, in the valley of the sons of uh, Hinnom, which is on the southwest part of Jerusalem. Uh, that they might burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. That is the burning to the idol Molech. This is how far they've gone. Not only are they involved in idolatry, but what they're involved in is, is burning their own children to idols, is the concept. And he said, something I didn't command them, nor did it come into my heart. And so God says that he's going to uh, bring doom and destruction. Look at verse 33. The corpse of this people will be for food for the birds. And then I will cause the cease the cities of Judah... And, uh, and from the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth. In other words, uh, the, the voice of celebration, the voice of, of crying uh, is not going to be heard anymore in Jerusalem because it's going, I'm going to wipe Jerusalem clean uh, is the idea. So what have I seen in chapter 6? Hypocrisy. Uh, so they, they trusted in lying words. They're trusting in their worship. They're trusting in their prayer. They're trusting in their sacrifices, all of which are useless because they're involved in sin and, and there is no obedience. All right, let's move to chapter 8 now. Chapter 8 shows that apostasy from God results in punishment. When they've gone as far as they've gone, they reach a condition that death will be desired rather than life, verses 1 to 3. And it shows a miserable condition. Uh, that they will, that At that time, when, when God deals with, with this nation and brings another nation in, that they'll bring uh, the bones of the kings of Judah and the princes and the priests and the prophets out of their graves and spread them out before the sun, uh, which they, uh, let me go back and start at verse 2, and spread them out before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and which they have served after they have walked. Now that suggests to me that, that not only are they bowing down before an idol, but there seems to be some, some worship of the stars and the planets involved in their idolatry. Uh, but notice the, the miserable condition 
uh, basically that death will be chosen, verse 3, rather than life by all the residue of those who remain. In other words, it'll be so terrible that those that are left may rather just die than to live in the condition uh, when they see the destruction that comes because of the sin when, when finally Jerusalem falls. Now, beginning at verse 4, their stubbornness. Their stubbornness is described uh, that led them to this perpetual, continual backsliding. Now, notice at verse 4, we don't have time to notice every uh, phrase. Uh, will they fall and not rise? Will they, turn away and not, uh, will they turn away and not return? Well, the illustration is that if you fall down, most people want to get back up. Try again. Keep going. But Judah fell down and they stayed down, is the idea. So why then has this people slidden back in Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding? They've just gone on and on. Notice verse 6. I listened and I heard, but they did not speak aright. In other words, God said, I, I listened, I didn't hear them talking the right thing. No man repented of his wickedness. You might underline that. Saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horses rush into battle. That's an interesting phrase. Just as a horse is rushing into battle, he said, they seem to be rushing right into sin. Not toward righteousness, but into sin. Now, look at verse 8. How can we say we, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Now, stop there for a moment. We've got a question, or at least on your handout, there's a point uh, that Judah apparently made an idol out of something, verse 8. And what is that? I think they made an idol out of the law. Like they did the temple. Nothing wrong with the temple, but they're, they're making the temple more, uh, we've got the temple, therefore, and the temple's with us, so therefore we're okay. Well, same thing with the law. We've got the law. We've got the, the copies of the law. And uh, we're Jews, by the way. And therefore everything's okay. Well, we are somewhat that way. We... we we, uh, we, we've got the word. We know our Bibles. We can quote scripture. Uh, we know the truth uh, on various subjects and we can refute the error of denominationalism. So we have the truth with us. Somewhat make an idol out of our knowledge of the scriptures. As if that makes everything okay. Well, that's what they had done. Now look at the false pen in the scribes. Certainly works falsehood. There's again the falsehoods that are mentioned. We're going to see more about that at verse uh, 11. Let's jump down to, in fact, let's go ahead and jump down to verse 11. Verse 10 talks about the false prophets. And uh, they, they have hurt, healed the hurt of, my, of the daughter of my people slightly, the new King James says. And the footnote says superficially. Now that's interesting. Uh, the, the healing that superficial means it's not, it's not true and it's not real, it just looks like so a false prophet comes along and he tells everybody everything's okay and he smooths that over and it looks okay, but it's superficial. There's nothing real about it. Well, what were they saying? You might underline it, verse 11. Here was the message. Jeremiah was a prophet of doom, saying doom is coming, destruction is coming, and doom is on its way, and yet the prophets were saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, everything's okay. Destruction is not coming. Nebuchadnezzar is not coming in. Jerusalem will not fall. The temple will never be destroyed. God wouldn't let that happen. We've got the law with us, by the way, and we've got the temple. 
So everything's okay. And he said they're preaching peace, peace when there is no peace. I'll tell you, there, there, there are false prophets today preaching peace, peace when there is no peace. All is well, even though you don't believe in God. All is well, even though you only have faith. But even among brethren, uh, when someone is in sin, someone comes along and says, there's nothing wrong with that. And so go ahead and practice that. It may be the sin of uh, drinking. It may be the sin of immodesty. It may be the sin of dancing. Maybe the sin of gambling. And some preacher may say, it's okay, there's nothing wrong with it, and I participate as well. And what he's saying is, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so, the same message is being preached today. Now, verse, verse 12 says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? You would have thought they would have been. The prophets are saying, peace, peace. And what that message, I want you to notice two things here, or three. One is that um, they should have been ashamed of sin, but they're not. But here's what I want you to notice, that, that kind of a subtle point. The prophets that were saying peace breed this concept in people that they're not ashamed of what they're doing. Stop and think about that. When someone says everything's okay, with this practice, nothing wrong with that, then that makes it so that I'm not ashamed if I do that because I bought into this peace, peace, when really there was no peace. And so I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of what I'm doing because he said it's okay. Brother so-and-so said it's okay. He said he, he saw nothing wrong with that. And he knows his Bible and he's a scholar and he's uh, uh, whatever. And so he says, peace, peace. And that breeds this lack of a shame when it comes to sin. But anyway, let's go further. Look at, again at verse 12. Were they ashamed when they committed the abomination? No, they were not ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. In other words, they've lost the ability to be embarrassed. There were things that ought to make you blush. In other words, make you ashamed. Doesn't bother them anymore. Now, for a couple of cross-references, we've tried to do this. Uh, and I mentioned this earlier when we were talking about chapter 3. You might make a cross-reference to chapter 3 and in verse 13. And if you look back at chapter 3 and uh, verse 13, um, uh, chapter 3 and verse 3, I'm sorry. Um, that Yes, chapter 3 and verse 3, that they, they were not ashamed and, and they, they couldn't blush. Um, you probably have a note to see chapter 6 and verse uh, 15. Or verse 12, I'm sorry, I can't read. Um, chapter 8 and verse 12. And then there's another one, chapter 6 and verse 15, uh, a very similar phrase that you noticed last week. Uh, so 6 and 15, 3 and 3, and 8 and verse 12. You might tie those together in your marginal notes. Uh, neither could they blush. Now, Let's see where we are. Uh, that gets us down through verse, verse 12. Now start at verse 13. They look for peace, but only trouble comes. Verses 13 to 17. Uh, God said, I will, I will surely consume them. There'll be, there'll be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on, uh, on the fig tree, and the leaf uh, shall fade, and all these things have given, and they shall pass away 
from them. And so you say, well, I don't know what that's all about. Basically, what, what verse 13 is saying, that they're fit only to be burnt. Here, here's a vine that doesn't have any grapes. And so if you, you, you can imagine having a garden and you have all these, uh, maybe you have tomato plants and the, the plants get big and they, they grow, but there's no tomatoes on it. And the next to plant, same way. And the next plant, the same way. And you, you don't have, but you've got plants and plants and plants, but you have no fruit. You say, well, I'll tell you what they're worth. Just cut them down and burn them. And that's what God says about Judah. Uh, you're fit, basically, to be destroyed and to be burned. So, verse 14. Why do we sit still, assemble yourselves, and let us enter the fortified cities, and let us be silent there? For the Lord our God has put us to silence, and given us water of gall to drink. And here's the picture of the consequence of sin. It's like God giving us uh, bitter water to drink, bitter consequences. In other words, here bitter consequences to, to the sin. And we look for peace, but no good came. And a time of health, and there came trouble. In other words, we, we were misled. We were told by the false prophets everything was okay. And destruction is coming. That's what's going to happen when destruction comes. We were misled. Let me, let me fast forward to the day of judgment. There are going to be people who are going to say, you know what, we were misled. We were told peace. and We, didn't find, we were told help and we didn't find it. We were told it was all right to do this. How sad. Now verse 17. I will send vipers among you. Vipers which cannot be charmed. And they'll bite you, says the Lord. You know what that tells me? It's too late. It's too late. Nothing can be done. It's a picture of God sending vipers, and there's nothing you can do about those vipers. You can't charm them. You can't, you can't shoo them off. You can't kill them. I'm sending vipers among you, and you can't charm these vipers I'm sending. Now, not literally is he sending vipers, but when I send Nebuchadnezzar in to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple, you're not going to stop him. And these vipers are going to bite you. It's too late. It's too late. Now let's start at verse 18 now and uh, go through verse 22. Notice Jeremiah felt passionate grief over the fate of Judah. He, he, uh, uh, this is where he seemed to be, one of the sections where he seemed to be a weeping prophet. That he said, I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint. Listen, my, uh, listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not our king in her? What happened to this nation? What happened to this nation? Why have they provoked me to anger? The carved image in the foreign idols. Now verse 20 is quite sad. You're looking for this in your handout. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. In other words, our hope, our plans, and our schemes didn't work. Egypt didn't help us. Do you remember back in studying Isaiah, we talked about the Egyptian party. That is, there's some different political parties, basically, and the Egyptian party, uh, as some call it, I'm calling it that, I forgot it was Humphreys or somebody calls it, uh, it may have been uh, Haley, it calls it the Egyptian party. Meaning that those that favored, let's go to Egypt for, for help, and maybe Egypt can spare us and, and fight off. Well, Egypt didn't help them. Because the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. The prophets lied to us. Verse 21, for the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no bomb in Gilead? 
reference to where the bomb was secured for medicinal purposes. And so basically, is there no medicine to, to, to heal? Is there not a physician? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? And the answer is because they, they are steeped in sin. So apostasy leads and results in punishment. That was the point. Hypocrisy, chapter 7, punishment coming because of their sin. Now let's spend the rest of our time in chapter 9 and wind this up. And let's look at chapter 9. Chapter 9 is talking about religion being guided by the imagination of man's own heart. And that indeed is corrupt. Now this is quite interesting at verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes fountains of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He was indeed a weeping prophet. I wish my head was just full of water and I'd just weep tears. Just weep tears all the time. Day and night. Reminds me of Psalm 119, verse 136. Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they kept not thy law. Interesting phrase. Reminds me of Lamentation 1 and verse 16. Reminds me of verse 18 of the same chapter, also chapter 13 and verse 17. Now, notice you're looking for this in your handout. And that is, what, what did he want to do? And the prophet said, oh, that I, would, had, had, oh, that I had, been, uh, had in the wilderness a lodging place for wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them. For they're all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Wish I had a place I could go and get away from all of this. Remind me of Psalm 55, a little bit. But he says, here's, here's why. Look at verse, verse 3. They're like a bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. Just like a bow that's being bent. He said they've bent their tongues for lies. Notice at verse 3, you might underline, they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me. Men who are steeped in sin and set toward a life of sin don't care to know God. But notice they're proceeding from evil to evil. They go from one sin to the next. They go, they're, they're involved in this sin, they go to this sin, then go to this sin, from this idol to that idol, etc. And they don't know me. Look at verse 5. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. They wear themselves out. Are you wearing yourselves out in the service of the king? Are you wearing yourself out in sin? They weary themselves. I mean, they just, they, they just involved in so much, it's like we're just, we're just wore out because we did this sin and then this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin, and we're just wore out with sin. He said they weary themselves. They go from evil to evil. Notice at verse 9, you're looking for this. Verse, let's get verse 8 first. They speak deceit. One speaks peacefully to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. They don't have any use. Because they do not respect God, they will not respect others. But verse 9, you're looking for this. And that is, shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And stop there. We'll get the rest of the verse in a minute. What should I do when people live this way? Should I not punish them? Well, that's the right thing to do. Here's another way of wording that. Shall I not avenge myself? Here's what I'm learning from that. You're looking for this in your handout. 
When, when God punishes sin, He avenges Himself. When God, punishes his, when God punishes sin, it shows the justice of God. And so, sometimes in studies like this, we say, I get tired of hearing about doom and destruction. Okay. Well, then get rid of the book of Jeremiah because that's what it's about. Get rid of much of the prophets. That's what they're about. But when we, when we look at the doom and destruction, that is a statement of the justice of God, is what that is. So every time I see God saying, I'm going to destroy them because of their sin, then that's saying, my God is a just God. That's a pretty positive statement, I think. Let's go further now. That gets us through verse 9. Let's start at verse 10. What happens now at verse 10 to 16, they're going to be scattered because they have forsaken God. So I will take up weeping and wailing, he said, because they are burned up so that no one pass, can pass. Uh, the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field, they're gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, and I'll make the cities of Judah desolate, at verse 11, without habitation. Who is a wise man who may understand this? And to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, why? Why is this? Why, why is this going on? That's the question. Verse 12 is raising, well, why? Why is this destruction coming? Look at verse 13. You might underline. Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it. They didn't obey me. What did they do? You're looking for this in your handout. Verse 14. They have walked according to the imagination of their own heart and after Baal's which their fathers taught them. There's several lessons to be learned from verse 14. They do whatever they thought ought to be done. They followed their own thoughts. They became their own God. And they went after Baals because that's what their fathers taught them. Like father, like son. All right, now notice at verse 16, I'm going to scatter them among the Gentiles. Now beginning at verse 17 now. So God's going to scatter them among the Gentiles because they forsook the law. Their mourners are called. Now, this alludes to the, the practice of calling in professional mourners. When, when, when there would be a death, you call in professional mourners and hire mourners to come in and wail and to cry and to, to, to show the sorrow indeed. And so it's th that picture. Consider, uh, considering call for mourning women that they may come and send for skillful wailing women. We need to call for mourners for Judah. Notice at verse 8, that, that our eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with water. What a sad picture. And then notice at verse, um, I want to drop down to verse 23. Notice at verse 23, you're looking for two things here in your handout. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. There's the first thing. You're looking for things that don't really matter. Let not the wise man glory in wisdom, nor the mighty man in his might, nor the rich man in his riches. Knowledge, power, and money. Then when it all the dust is settled, here are three things that don't matter. Wisdom, knowledge, Money and power. Men spend all of their life gathering up money and becoming rich. Accumulating power in Washington or wherever they may be. 
and spend all their life in school learning some form of knowledge. And when all the dust settles, God said, none of that matters. Here's what does matter, though. You're looking for this also in verse 24. The one who understands and knows me. For in these I delight, verse 24. God said, I don't care about your knowledge. I don't care about your money. I don't care about your power. I do care. I do care. This is the only thing that's going to matter in the end is whether or not you understand and know me. Do you understand and know God? Now let's wind up looking at verse 26. The days are coming, verse 25 actually, that I will punish all who are uncircumcised with all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. That is the Jews with the pagans. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, etc. For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Now that's powerful. You see, the Jews, Judah, in this case, are no different than the pagans. Oh, literally, physically, they may have been circumcised, but not in the heart. That reminds me of Romans 2. He is a Jew which is one inwardly, that is, of the heart, in the spirit. Verse 28 and 29. Well, we said there are three things. And let's go back to those three things that are a summary of these chapters. What we saw is hypocrisy in chapter 7. They're full of hypocrisy. Doom is coming because of sin, chapter 8. And then this punishment is absolutely just. Absolutely just. Now a couple of the questions. We may have time just a minute or so. Um, I think we covered most everything that's in the handout. The, the questions. Um, question number five. Um, is what is the practice that God did not command? Is offering a sacrifice unto Molech. And then question number six, what does chapter nine say about how Jeremiah felt? He wept bitterly, chapter nine, verse one, verse 18. He wished he could be removed, verse two. Back to question one, what promise did he make if Judah changed, caused them to dwell in the land? And then um, question seven and eight quickly and we'll, we'll stop. Uh, how had the false prophets hurt the people by lying to them, telling them peace when there was none? And what was the lying words that the people trusted in that they could sin and all would be well. That the temple was not going to be destroyed. And therefore, as long as it's here, God's not going to allow them to come in. And so they were saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. We'll stop there in chapter 10 next time.